Now, just to backtrack a little bit, you might remember that last week, Mark dropped on us a theological bomb. Uh, he said that Jesus taught that defilement comes from within, uh, from the heart of man. And Jesus then had this big extensive list of sins or evil uh, that come from the human heart. And he confronted everyone when he listed these individual sins that flow from the human heart. The defilement doesn't come from the outside, but defilement comes from within, from the heart. And I'm sure that Mark's audience, Roman readers in the city of Rome, I'm sure when they read those words of Christ, uh, they were impacted, they were convicted, they were confronted and also reminded of the hope of the gospel that only Jesus can truly transform the human heart. Uh, but we also, last week, as we interacted with that passage, we were confronted as well. I mean, when we heard Jesus say in chapter 7, verse 21, from within, from the heart, come evil thoughts. I don't know about you, but at least for me, my first impulse is to kind of just nod in agreement. Like, that's true, Lord. I know that to be true. I've seen that from my own experience and in the lives of others and in humanity around me that wickedness, evil, it comes from the heart within. But Jesus didn't stop there. He just kept listing all of these individual things. Sexual immorality, theft. You know, we say, okay, Jesus got it. That's so true. Murder, adultery. Okay, Jesus, yeah, I agree with you. Coveting, wickedness, he proceeded. You know, like, okay, Jesus, like, I've, I've got it. You can leave me alone now. Deceit, sensuality, envy, slander. You can just feel the temperature rising in the room. It's uncomfortable. Pride, foolishness, Jesus said. All these things come from within and they defile a person. Now, after Jesus says something like that, we might be tempted to argue with Jesus. We might object at being spoken to or spoken about in that way. How can the human heart be that bad? Maybe some people have that kind of wicked, insidious, evil, internal wiring, but all people, me, Jesus, how could you say something like that about us? But as we're going to see today in the passage or the episodes in front of us, though anyone can turn to Jesus, we must not argue with what Jesus says about us. He does not release us from our captive hearts because of our merit or our goodness or the sliver of our hearts that are pure and good. No, it is all of the grace. It is all by the grace of God. So we must agree with Jesus about what he said, lest we are unable to tap into the glorious grace of God. As long as we self-approve and self-justify, we will never be let in to the mysteries and the glories of the unmerited favor, the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, as examples of this unmerited grace that I'm talking about, Mark is now going to hold out for us two examples. The first one will be a woman. The second one will be a man. So let's start with the woman's story in verse 24. 
It says, and from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. He had probably gone there for a time of rest, uh, but there was ministry for him to do. He could not be hidden. Verse 25, but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him or begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. Okay, that's the setting. Now there are a lot of details to this story that they don't really immediately jump out to us as noteworthy, but they would have jumped out to the original audience of Mark's gospel. I mean, just think about the flow of Mark chapter 7. Jesus has just been talking to the religious leaders uh, about religious ceremonies designed to keep them religiously pure. And one of the reasons why they had all these ceremonies was because of the scary possibility in their minds that they might interact with a woman like this, that they might become unclean in the marketplace through interacting with a Gentile woman like this, who is in their estimation unclean. And Mark is very careful to show how this woman was an outsider in every way. So she approaches Jesus first and Mark lists her lack of credentials to to do so, to approach him. First, he says in verse 24 that she lived in the region of Tyre and Sidon. This is northwest of Capernaum, where Jesus did a lot of his ministry. Uh, it's in modern-day Lebanon. It was a place that to the Jewish population at that time represented the most extreme forms of paganism. When they would think about pagan schemes and ideas that had invaded Israel historically. They would think about Tyre and Sidon and the pagan ideas that had come from that place. She was also a woman. And in a culture that did not value women as highly as they should be valued, uh, this did not uh, count as a great credential for her to come to Jesus. She was also, verse 26, we learn, a Gentile. She lived in a Gentile region, but she was Gentile herself outside the covenant of Israel. And verse 26 also tells us that she was Syrophoenician by birth, meaning that she had come from that non-Jewish Gentile outsider region. And the reason that she came to Jesus, it's a heartbreaking reason. She had a daughter with an unclean spirit. You know, we don't know the details, but as a mother, she was finely tuned to her daughter's pains. You know, parenting can be a heart-rending experience. And this woman, she'd been torn in two by the pain that had been caused by her daughter or to her daughter. So she came to Jesus and she begged, please get this demon away from my girl. Now, this is not the first woman in scripture to have come from Tyre and Sidon. Historically, some of Israel's darkest hours were caused by a woman in the Old Testament who had come from this place. King Ahab, one of the most wicked kings in northern Israel, 
had married a daughter of the then Sidonian king, a woman named Jezebel. And Jezebel became famous for introducing gross forms of idolatry into Israel and also for persecuting the prophets of God in Israel. So you could imagine that women from Tyre and Sidon would have been regarded with great suspicion by men like the disciples. And all of this might have programmed the disciples to expect the kind of scene that they found in Tyre, Tyre and Sidon. I don't know how often they'd gone there. I don't know if they'd ever gone there during their entire adult lives. I'm sure though that they were shocked by Jesus's desire to go into a territory widely regarded as filled with great darkness. So when they heard that this woman had a daughter who was demon possessed or had an unclean spirit, it's possible given all of the background that I just mentioned that these disciples said to themselves, this is just what we thought we would find here. This is just what we suspected. These people up here in Tyre and Sidon, what a mess. It's terrible what these people have done. And I think for Peter, who was the source of Mark's gospel, this story was emblazoned on his heart. I think it was in his mind when years later, after Jesus had ascended, God's spirit called him also to go north to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentile world. And I think he remembered how Jesus had gone north and ministered to this Gentile woman. You see, Jesus's interaction with this woman was a sneak peek into his desire to be a blessing to all nations. God had promised Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse three, that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Jesus is the one who came to fulfill that promise and bring multinational blessing from God to this world. And our episodes today are a foretaste of Jesus's plan. Though the disciples don't yet get it, the Jewish Messiah apparently is for everyone. So let's go on reading. It says in verse, excuse me, uh, 27 and he said to her let the children be fed first for it is not right to take the children's bed bread and throw it to the dogs now this is a shocking statement from jesus and everything that i've said up to this point before i look at what jesus is actually saying here in this statement to this woman should cause us to ask a question of ourselves who might i imagine is far from the kingdom. You know, like this woman is far apparently from the kingdom. Who might I imagine is far from the kingdom? Who might you think is beyond the grace of God? Is it the person with the political leanings that are opposite yours? Is it the person entrenched in a worldview dominated by the teaching of evolution? Is it the person walking in confusion regarding sexuality? Is it a person who looks unlike you? Is it the person who, like this woman, lives in lands that are mysterious to you? If so, don't think that way because God is on the move through the whole world. Jesus went to Tyre and Sidon to reach this woman and Jesus, by his spirit, is reaching into every tribe and nation and tongue today. 
You know, in the Middle East right now, which of course is home to Christianity's oldest and most long-standing churches, God is doing a major work, even in countries that are closed off to the gospel. Some of our fastest growing, and as you can imagine, most persecuted churches can be found in the Middle East. In the first couple centuries of the church, Christianity took roots in Africa, in places like Ethiopia, Egypt, Tunisia, the Sudan, and other parts of the continent. And today, over 60% of sub-Saharan Africa identifies as Christian. Some have even estimated that by the year 2050, 40% of the world's Christians will be from that part of the world. In India, Christianity is a vast minority religiously, but it is growing in number, appealing to many, partly because it insists on equal value and dignity for all humans. The gospel, which exalts human life, is a powerful message which confronts the caste system's vestiges where untouchables are considered less than human. And many of them have come to Christ. And in China, conservative estimates from early, earlier in this decade put the Christian population at somewhere around 70 million people, though it's hard to know with great accuracy what the number actually is. Some people predict that by the year 2030, there will be more Christians in China than there are in the United States of America. In other words, you've got to have an, an image or a view of what God is doing here on earth in reaching the nations. Not just our nation, but the nations. This is who Jesus is. We can't allow ourselves to have a view of Christianity that confuses nationalism with biblical faith. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for the whole world. And the apocalyptic vision of the book of Revelation is beautiful. There we are seen for eternity singing a new song to Jesus where we say, you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now let's go on to read verse 27 to verse 30. I already read verse 27, but let's read it again. It's a controversial statement from Jesus. It says, and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Now, like I said, this is one of Jesus's more controversial controversial or at first glance offensive statements. He said, let the children be fed first for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, just to let you in on this, they were not a society uh, that loved dogs. They weren't a canine loving society. They weren't like Carmel, California, where you could bring a dog into a restaurant or something like that. No, in the Old Testament, dogs were often used to depict uncleanness or unholiness. 
Uh, they were animals that roamed the streets and ate garbage or roadkill. Uh, Jewish culture at that time referred to non-Jewish people as dogs. This is, a, this is racially charged language that Jesus is using here. So what did Jesus mean? How did she hear these words? Why would he say something like this? Okay, there are some clues that Jesus was not trying to offend the woman and obstruct the woman from coming to him. And, and here are the clues. I, I've got five of them. First, there's the nature of Jesus himself. You know, he is the one who stepped out of heaven to save all of humanity. We know this looking back into the story. Secondly, the story ends with this woman's daughter's deliverance, which helps us learn why Jesus went to Tyre in the first place. I'm sure the disciples were wondering, why are we going up here? Well, now they know Jesus had a, an appointment that his father had made for him with this woman. Third, he did not use the Greek word describing the typical street dog, but instead used a different Greek word that indicated the little house dogs that would be beloved as pets in the home. Fourth, he said, let the little children be fed first, which gave her hope that there might be a different group, another group that would be fed second. Fifth, in that era, Jews considered themselves God's children while they considered Gentiles to be dogs. So Jesus is teaching the woman or saying to the woman in code or in parabolic form, look, I have to go to the Jew first. I have to minister to the Jew first and then later to the non-Jewish world. Now this meaning is solidified by Matthew's account of this story. There he adds that Jesus said in Matthew 15, 21, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, I have to minister first to the people of Israel. Once I do that, then I can minister to the nations. This seems to be the parable that Jesus is trying to say to this woman. It's similar to what Paul said at the beginning of the book of Romans when he said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Jesus' statement is actually a hope-filled statement for this woman. It was a hint of God's plan to come minister as the Jewish Messiah who would be the Messiah for all nations. And her response to what Jesus said is amazing. She said, yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the, the, the children's crumbs. And that's the way they did things. You know, back in that era, they didn't use napkins. They used bread to wipe their hands and then they would throw it off to the side. And the little dogs, if there were some in the home, would gladly eat up the bread that had been cast aside. Now I want you to see what the woman is doing. She knows something that the disciples don't even know. She believes that the kingdom will extend to all nations and nationalities of this world. And she begs Jesus to let her taste the kingdom right now. 
in effect, it's like she's saying to Jesus, yeah, okay, I believe that. The Jews are the children. We are like the dogs in the household. But you're saying we all get to eat and I want to eat right now because my daughter is in need. And Jesus loved her faith. He said to her, for this statement or this confession, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Now, like I said earlier, our temptation is to argue with Jesus when he says things that are so confrontational about who we are. When we saw that last week about the human heart and its condition, we might have wanted to push back. But this woman does not push back. She does not argue with Jesus. She isn't offended by his words. And if she is, she keeps it to herself. She does not list her credentials or stand on her own two feet and say, I deserve to be heard by you. She doesn't see herself as worthy of his blessing. Instead, she agrees with Jesus. She embraces his words. What does she want? What is she looking for from Jesus? She's looking for grace, favor from Christ that she cannot see and that she does not deserve. She becomes like Jacob in the Old Testament whose name was changed to Israel. He wrestled with God one night until God gave him a blessing. And here she does the same thing. She's wrestling with Jesus and she taps into the kingdom. She re receives treatment from Jesus, not as a dog, but as a child. As a Gentile woman, she partook of the Jewish Messiah. You see, anyone can partake of Christ, but everyone who does must come with an expectation of grace. If you come to Jesus with demands built on your own worthiness, if you come with the thought that you deserve his blessings, you will miss out. But if you come expecting, longing for, asking for, desiring, and pleading for an outpouring of his goodness, solely at the discretion of his marvelous grace, then get ready, hold out your hands and take his unmerited favor on your life. There's a Psalm, Psalm 81 verse 10, where God says to his people, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. And if you are looking for grace, true unmerited grace, and you present yourself to Christ, Open your mouth wide, for he will fill it. So that's the story of the woman, but let's move on to the second episode. It says in verse 31, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. All right, this is our second story, of course, and this one also occurs in a predominantly Gentile region. Uh, here, Jesus goes through Sidon, uh, maybe on a little missions trip, uh, before he finally heads down to the region of the Decapolis. And once he was there, there was this group of people, and they begged Jesus, because they brought to him a man, they begged Jesus to lay his hand, uh, a hand of healing, on a man who was deaf and therefore could not speak. And verse 33, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looked up to heaven 
And he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. All right, if you're new to Jesus today, if you've never heard about him, you might be wondering if this was the way he normally healed people. But it wasn't at all. This is a very creative method that Jesus is using. He healed in a lot of different ways. And this was one of his more creative ways that he used. And why did Jesus heal the man like this? Why did he heal him this way? Why did he give him privacy? Why did he put his fingers in the man's ears? Why did he spit and touch the man's tongue? That's probably one of the weirdest of all. Why did he look up to heaven? Why did he sigh? Why did he say in Aramaic, Ephatha, which means be open? Okay, so, some would say, well, the reason Jesus did it this way is because Jesus will not replicate any style of healing because uh, he wants us to depend on him rather than upon a methodology. And maybe this is what Jesus is doing. Maybe it's his way of keeping us dependent on him. But I wonder if more is at play. I mean, think about the man that he's dealing with. This man is deaf. He cannot hear. He can't speak. And here comes Jesus. And notice, everything Jesus does is an exaggerated movement. It's like Jesus is using universal sign language to communicate to this man. I mean, there's a big crowd. The man's wondering what's going on. He can't hear what people are saying. Jesus comes up and Jesus uses that exaggerated movement to pull the man aside privately. Now the man knows it's just me and Jesus. He's going to deal with me. He has something for me. Then Jesus touched his ears, indicating I'm going to do something with your hearing. He touched his mouth. He even used spittle, which was kind of a, a superstition that they had in that day, kind of pointing to some kind of healing power or ability. And so the man's beginning to learn through Jesus's actions that there is potentially a healing that is coming his way. Jesus then looked up to heaven. That's universal sign for I'm looking to God to do what is going to be done right now. And he sighed. That's a symbol of grief over human brokenness. And it's a symbol that the man could have seen. He would have seen Jesus's inhale of breath and exhaling his breath, he would have seen this sigh of grief. And Jesus even used a word in Aramaic, ephatha, that when you think about it, it's a word that would have been very easy for this man to lip read. It's just very clear. Be open. And the man was healed. His ears were open and his tongue was released. Immediately, it says in verse 35, he could speak plainly. Now the phrase, his tongue was released, could be translated, the chain of his tongue was broken. In other words, it was loosened. The word usually in the New Testament talks about setting prisoners free, not setting tongues free, but prisoners free. It's a, it's a word of liberation. This man was liberated by Jesus from his speech impediment and from his inability to hear. Now, perhaps this whole story can serve for us as an illustration of the fact that anyone can partake of Christ, but Jesus must be the one who 
gives us our senses, who helps us to discern him. You know, he's available, of course, for everyone. But in the woman's story, we saw that everyone needs to come to him expecting and looking for, hoping for, longing for grace, unmerited favor. But in this man's story, we learn that it's Jesus who can unlock the dulled senses of the human heart. I mean, what we saw last week makes us conclude who then can be saved if that's what the human heart is like. Well, Jesus comes along and answers that question. He can unlock that which has been locked. I mean, after looking at the human heart, we might be tempted to think there's no hope at all. How can anyone ever turn to Christ? But when Jesus comes along, he shows us he can do the job. You know, Paul, the apostle who we love so much, described his own conversion in this way. When, when God met him, Paul said it this way. He said, it was the moment where God, who had set Paul apart from his birth, was pleased to reveal his son to me. The scales, in other words, fell from Paul's eyes. What he could not see previously, he was able to see because God revealed the Son to Paul. And those of you who know Jesus today, uh, you've had this experience. God unlocked your senses. You woke up and the light of Christ shone upon your heart. It was like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, let the light shine out of darkness, Paul quoted. That same God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, sometimes we think that salvation is impossible for the people that we know or nations we're praying for. But the reality is Jesus is able. He is the one who can unlock the deaf or the blindness that a person has in a spiritual sense. Okay, let's end our time today by looking at the final verses, verse 36 and 37. It says, And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Okay, this episode, this whole movement, this chapter even, closes with Jesus one more time, telling people to refrain from broadcasting all that he'd done. It's kind of a constant theme in the book of Mark. Uh, his fame was becoming a hindrance to his ministry work, but it was also important for Jew and Gentile alike to understand that signs and wonders, miracles, healings, really weren't wasn't the point of Jesus's ministry or his work. He wanted people to wait until after the cross to talk about him because then they'd have the full gospel to be able to declare. At this point, these people only had part of the story. But as is often the case, the people couldn't keep it in and I don't think we can really blame them for their disobedience. And they went out and they zealously proclaimed what Jesus had done. Then there's this cool summary statement that Mark records, the people said he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. All right, let me conclude with one 
last point today. In these episodes today, Jesus went to Tyre, he went to Sidon, he went to the predominantly Gentile Decapolis. This is all a foretaste of his work among the nations. I think Mark wants us to see these stories as a glimpse of the future golden age of the kingdom because of something he said in verse 32, if I could backtrack for a moment. There in verse 32, he said that this man had a speech impediment. It's the only time in the whole Greek New Testament that that particular word is used. The Old Testament, of course, wasn't written originally in Greek, but at the time of Christ, there was a Greek version of the Old Testament that they studied from called the Septuagint. And only one time in the whole Old Testament is this Greek word for speech impediment used. Once in the New Testament, once in the Old Testament. I think Mark is trying to point us to the Old Testament passage that has this word. Let's conclude by reading this passage together. It's Isaiah 35. This chapter is about the future glorious kingdom that we will receive in Jesus. One day after a period of seven years of great tribulation, Jesus will return and subdue the earth, restoring it to glory it seems, according to Revelation and other passages in the Old Testament, for a period of a thousand years. There will be just laws. There will be righteous leadership. There will be human flourishing. Jesus will reign supreme. And here's what it will look like. Isaiah 35. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Even the wilderness and desert will be glad in those days. The wasteland will rejoice and blossom with spring crocuses. Yes, there will be an abundance of flowers and singing and joy. The deserts will become as green as the mountains of Lebanon, as lovely as Mount Carmel or the plain of Sharon. There the Lord will display his glory, the splendor of our God. With this news, strengthen those who have tired hands. Do you have tired hands today? I hope this strengthens you and encourage those who have weak knees. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear for your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He is coming to save you. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. This is what they just said that Jesus had done. The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams will water the wasteland. This is not the Old Testament's way of saying or talking about Jesus' first coming. It's a way of saying that some of the things you see in his first coming are going to be fully experienced in his second coming. The parched ground will become a pool and springs of water will satisfy the thirsty land. Marsh grass and reeds and rushes will flourish where desert jackals once lived. And a great road will go through that deserted land. It will be named the Highway of Holiness. Evil-minded people will never travel on it. It will be only be for those who's, who walk in God's ways. Fools will never walk there. Lions will not lurk along its course, nor any other ferocious beasts. There will be no other dangers. Only the redeemed will walk on that road. Those who have been ransomed by the Lord will return. 
They will enter Jerusalem singing, crowned with everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning will disappear and they will be filled with joy and gladness. These are some of the things that Jesus, through this activity in Mark's gospel, was foreshadowing that glorious day to come where we get to live in the fullness of his kingdom. Now our episodes today began with Jesus going to Tyre for a time of rest. Mark said that Jesus could not be hidden in verse 24. And it was true that day in Tyre, but it was also true among the nations ever since. Jesus cannot be hidden. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the one we need. Jesus is the one who will renew this earth. Let's believe in him. Let's trust him. Let's preach him.